Now we're going to read together from the scriptures. Returning tonight to the book of Acts. We're in Acts chapter 13. you're finding the place as you can probably see we've made a couple of little tweaks to our service and that's been very deliberate and one of those tweaks was just to dispense with the the second hymn according to the guidelines we have been allowed to uh, have limited singing and to have uh, I suppose what some has called low singing uh, whatever that means Um, But just for now, as the next few weeks unfold, we'll just limit ourselves to an opening and a closing hymn, and the organ will be played during the offering hymn, and that'll give safeguard and protection to all, uh, and helpfully deliver some from their fears. So let's read the Word of God, Acts chapter 13, we're reading from verse 14, follow with me if you can. It says, But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch and Poseidon, and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and sat down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent unto them, saying, Ye men and brethren, if ye have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. Then Paul stood up and, beckoning with his hand, said, Men of Israel, and ye that fear God, give audience. The God of this people of Israel chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt, and with an high arm brought he them out of it. And about the time of forty years suffered he their manners in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he divided their land to them by lot. And after that, he gave unto them judges about the space of 450 years until Samuel the prophet. And afterward, they desired a king. And God gave unto them Saul, the son of Sis, a man of the tribe of Benjamin by the space of 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up unto them David to be their king, To whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after mine own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. Of this man's seed hath God, according to his promise, raised unto Israel a Savior, Jesus. When John had first preached before his coming the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, And as John fulfilled his course, he said, Whom think ye that I am? I am not he. But behold, there cometh one after me, whose shoes of his feet I am not worthy to lose. Men and brethren, children of the stock of Abraham, and whosoever among you feareth God, to you is the word of this salvation sent. For they that dwell at Jerusalem and their rulers, because they knew him not, nor yet the voices of the prophets which are read every Sabbath day, 
they have fulfilled them in condemning him. And though they found no cause of death in him, yet desired that Pilate, that he should be slain. And when they had fulfilled all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and led him in a sepulcher. But God raised him from the dead. And he was seen many days of them which came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses unto the people. And we declare unto you glad tidings, how that the promise which was made unto the fathers, God hath fulfilled the same unto us their children, in that he hath raised up Jesus again, as it is also written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And as concerning that he raised him up from the dead, now no more to return to corruption, he said in this wise, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Wherefore he saith also in another psalm, Thou shalt not suffer thine holy one to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell in sleep and was led unto his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised again saw no corruption. Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins, and by him all that believe are justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest that come upon you which is spoken of in the prophets. Behold, ye despisers, and wonder and perish, for I work a work in your days, a work which ye shall in no wise believe, though a man declare it unto you. Amen. We know the Lord will stamp with his own approval and blessing this reading of the Holy Scriptures. Now, my text tonight is taken from Acts chapter 13, verses 38 and 39. If you follow with me in the text, it reads, Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins, and by him all that believe are justified from all things from which ye could not be justified by the law of Moses. And I want to preach tonight on the subject that I've entitled, The Wonder of God's Forgiveness. Now think of the context here. The context here is found in the early stages of the Apostle Paul's first missionary journey. After a short preaching tour of the island of Cyprus, and then in Perga in Pamphylia, they came to Antioch in Poseidon, which is located somewhere in uh, central Turkey. And as their custom, they entered into the Jewish synagogue there, bear in mind it was the Sabbath day, and Paul was invited to give, as the Bible says, a word of exhortation to the people. And you can read that word of exhortation. I've already read it to you tonight. It's found in Acts 13, verses 16, right through to 41. And here, I believe, the Spirit of God records for us, uh, in a, a synopsis form, the sermon that was preached that day. And as I was thinking, having read through the sermon, isn't it interesting that you've got the main elements here of a faithful church service? You've got a period, the Sabbath day. Well, of course, that was the Jewish Sabbath. This is now the Christian Sabbath. You've got a place, 
they were in Antioch. There was a, 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 a geographical location. You've got a preacher. If you look at the text, it says that through this man is preached unto you. Underline the word preached. See, Paul was not a speaker. He was not merely there to give a talk. He, he wasn't a lecturer in a circuit or an historian. Paul was a preacher. And, and I prefer the term preacher rather than speaker because a preacher was, was a person who was there to herald a message. There was a procedure at that time because there was the reading of the law. So the Old Testament scriptures was read. There was a people assembled. There was a congregation full of Jews and non-Jews. A people had gathered to listen to the preacher, gathered to hear the word of God. Uh, so they were, they were listening. They were there to learn. And, and they were going to learn from that word that they might live before God. And not only was there a period and a place and a preacher and a procedure and a people, but there was a proclamation. Think, think of these words. Men of Israel... And ye that fear God give audience. Verse 26, men and brethren, children of the stock of Abraham. You see, the Apostle Paul was calling for their undivided attention. He was wanting them to give audience. He, he was inviting them and saying, look, listen to what I have to say. He was attempting to be clear and plain. I have no doubt he was earnest and no doubt he was passionate. There's a wee story told about a, an actor who was friends with a minister, and uh, the minister was saying to this actor, you know, you're a great actor. Could you tell me your secret? You know, I stand in the pulpit every Sunday, and I preach, and it's as if there's nobody listening to me. Because in one ear and the other, he said, if you were to do it, I, I guarantee you would get wrapped attention. And this is what the actor friend said to him. When I'm acting, I treat fiction as if it's fact. But when you preach, you're treating facts as if they're fiction. And I thought of that. You see, there has to be a proclamation. And here's the Apostle Paul's proclamation that day. Here's the synopsis of the sermon, verses 16 right through to verse 41. And what a powerful, wonderful sermon it actually is. And we're focusing tonight on the concluding part of the message. Because as he closes the message, he focuses in on one particular salient truth. Namely this, the wonder of God's forgiveness. And that's what verses 38 and 39 is really all about. And as you notice there, as he closes the message, he pleads. Verses 40 and 41, he, he applies this accurate, this uh, uh, appropriate truth that he has proclaimed in their hearing. See, I have no doubt tonight when I read this, Paul's the Lord's messenger in the Lord's message. And what was true then has to be true today. Aren't you glad tonight that, that we, we, we've got a, a specified period in which we, to meet the, the Christian Sabbath? Aren't you glad tonight we've got a place to meet? Aren't you glad tonight that there's a preacher in the pulpit? Aren't you glad tonight you've assembled, gathered here, or, or you're tuning in? Aren't you glad tonight we've had a procedure? We've offered praise. We've read from the scriptures. We've offered prayer. And now we're going to have the central act of worship, which is a proclamation. And that proclamation has to do with the gospel. 
the good news of the person and work of Christ. And at the end, we'll apply the word and plead for sinners to repent and be converted. That, you see, is the element of a faithful church service. And it's all here in the book. As you think of our subject tonight, the um, wonder of God's forgiveness, I I want you to think of four things. First of all, think of the necessity of God's forgiveness. If you look at the text, it, it says... Notice the word sins in verse 38. Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. You see, as part of Paul's sermon, he's underlining the necessary requirement of forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins is the forgiven of an individual sense. That's basic and that's elementary. Think of the mention of sins here. Couldn't we say tonight that all men are sinners before God? Romans 3 and 23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And of course, we have to ask the question, when did all sin? And we answer that in Romans 5 and verse 12, wherefore as by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. You see, remember we sinned in Adam. We inherited the guilt of Adam's first transgression. And because of that first transgression in the loins of Adam, we became guilty sinners. And on that ground alone, God could have damned us in hell for all eternity. And every other sin that's a transgression of the law inherits additional guilt. So not only have we guilt of his first transgression, but we have guilt of every other transgression of the law of God. Because remember, that's what sin is. Sin's the transgression of the law. Think of our catechism, question 14, what is sin? Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Is there not tonight a complete failure in man's part to conform to and obey the, the law of God? Is it not true tonight that man is a rebel and wants and goes his own way? Is man not born to go astray as soon as he uh, comes from the womb? Has he not got an inbuilt bias to God? Has he not taken and broken the holy law of God, refusing to bow the knee, especially to the Lord? No act of contrition, not being sorry for one's sins, no act of submission to the Lord. You know, when we begin to examine the Ten Commandments and think about the spirituality of the law and and, and, and not being conformed to it and, and not obeying it, then we, we see really how sinful and broken we are. But not only the mention of sins, but think about the multiplying of sins. Because it says here, forgiveness of sins. It, it, it's not just singular, it's plural. All men are guilty of a multiplicity of sins. Dr. Paisley wrote that little book, uh, Thumbnail uh, Sermons. And he, in one of those sermons, he talked about sin being the oldest thing in the world. You see, if we think of the sin that we commit in thought and word and deed, they, they run into thousands and even tens of thousands. You see, sin's not a light thing. It, it, it's, it, it's, it's, it's not a mere frivolous matter. It's not something to be, to be uh, taken in a lighthearted way. It's a serious thing. It's an offense, an affront to God. Remember what the apostle Uh, uh, Well, the Lord Jesus said, first of all, in Matthew chapter 7, he he mentioned uh, in chapter 8 and verse uh, 21, or chapter 7, 
sorry, Mark uh, chapter 7, uh, in uh, verse uh, 21, he said this, um, For from within, uh, out of the heart of man, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, theft, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness, all these evil things come from within and defile the man. Notice the plurality of that. You see, all and every sin is offensive to the Lord. It's, it's heinous to him. It's a transgression of his high and holy law. And the Lord, on that basis of his holy judgment, that we're all sinners in his sight, and his holy justice, he will punish the sinner for every sin according to what that sin deserves in everlasting hell. And therefore, in light of that, every one of these sins need to be forgiven. So here's man's greatest need. And here's the greatest knowledge that you could possess. Young people, here's the best news ever. The Bible says in Psalm 130, there is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. There's forgiveness with the Lord. All sin, every sin can be pardoned. It can be dealt with on the ground of the precious blood. And I believe tonight that forgiveness of sins is one of the greatest blessings that ever can be known and received. What a subject. The remission of every sin, the removal of every sin, the record of every sin that offends the Lord, blotted out. Do you know tonight you need to be forgiven? Do you know tonight you can be forgiven? Remember what the psalmist said in uh, Psalm uh, 32 and in uh, verses uh, 1 and 2, he, he made this great statement. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. There's the necessity of God's forgiveness. I want you to see, secondly, if you go back to our text, the centrality of God's forgiveness. Notice the words. Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. There's the reference here to a man, that through this man. Now, who are they referring to? Who's Paul referring to? Well, he's referring to none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. If you link it up with Acts 13, verse 23, of this man's seed hath God, according to his promise, raised unto Israel a saviour, Jesus. I, I, I trust that you see that. And, and then from that time on, he's been talking about Christ. And um, the preaching of Paul centered on the person and work of Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus is in view. And that has to be the center of all our preaching ministry and is the center of all our preaching ministry within the whole of the Free Presbyterian denomination. When you think of the subject of God's forgiveness, you've got to think of the centrality of it and what basis and ground does God forgive sins and it's connected to the person and work of the Lord Jesus. Notice Paul says that through uh, this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. You see, there's a particular man in view here. Think of the words, through this man. And then come to verse 39. It says, and by him all that believe are justified. Think of the words, through this man, by him. 
See, a, a, a particular man is in view. He's been appointed to a particular role, the role of the mediator. And we'd have to link it up then to 1 Timothy 2 and 5, for there's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. See, all things are through him. All things are, are by him. And, and that is fundamental to the heart of the gospel. That's the very, very root of the gospel. The emphasis here is on Christ's real true humanity. See, Paul was saying, Of this man's seed hath God, according to his promise, raised unto Israel a Savior, Jesus. Can you see that there? In verse 23, he's referring to David. And the Lord Jesus came forth through the line and is of the seed of David. And his true real humanity is being set forth. He, he was truly a man of flesh and blood. He, he had a real humanity. Not only is there a particular man in view here, but there's a promised man in view. Christ was promised. Think of the word, his promise. Raised unto Israel as Savior, Jesus. See, you can link it up with Genesis 3 and verse 15. Isn't that the first gospel promise in the Bible and it was God himself gave it and he gave it uh, just uh, to Adam and Eve in the uh, outskirts of the garden and listen again to what he said and I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed it shall bruise thy head and thou shall bruise his heel there's the first gospel promise in, in embryonic and seed form and, and our first parents, you know, fell into sin. They rebelled against the Lord. And the Lord came and spoke about the promise of a deliverer. And, and the Redeemer, of course, must come from the seed of a woman. And the scripture says, but when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman made under the law to redeem them that were under the law. Galatians 4, 4 and 5. And you see, if sin came into the world by man, that was Adam, then it had to be conquered, cancelled out and carried away also by a man. And, and that's where the second man, the Lord Jesus, came into the world. And he was promised. And it all came to pass as God promised. Every detail, every word, it was all fulfilled minutely by the Lord. Can I tell you as well, I believe he was a perfect man. If you look at Acts 13, verse 28, it says, And though they found no cause of death, in him. You see, he was a sinless man. He was the God man. You have to think of his birth, his incarnation. Think of his life, sinless. Think of his death, atoning. Think of his resurrection. The Lord Jesus lived and died for sinful men as a sinful man. God the Father said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. You see, he was absolutely intrinsically sinless. There was no sin in him. He did no sin. He knew no sin. In fact, the scripture says, in him was no sin. He had a true, pure, genuine, real humanity. Paul says it was him that men took. With the aid of Pontius Pilate and Herod and our rulers, and they slew him on a tree. Remember, the sacrifice had to be without blemish. Hebrews 12 and 14 says, But this man, after he'd offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down in the right hand of God. And the one who died had to be sinless and spotless. 
And the Lord Jesus had a rare purity about him. He he possessed a real, true humanity before God. And and the work then that that he did in the tree was was a work of infinite value. He was a saviour. That's exactly what Paul's telling us here. And, and, And he was a powerful man. You see, by man the whole world fell into sin and suffered the consequences of sin and judgment. And by man the whole world Sinners from every nation under heaven need to be delivered and need to be rescued. And here was a sinless man who was sent to rescue them, sent to save them. And you can trust and rely on him to save you. And to him give all the the prophets witness. And the Lord Jesus, we're told here, was such a man. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. He didn't die for himself. He died a substitutionary atoning death. His was a vicarious atonement. He accomplished the work that the Father gave him to do. Remember his cry, it is finished. And let me emphasize tonight, forgiveness of sins is only found through this man and his mediatorial work. I ask tonight, how do you view the death of Christ? Do you see Christ in the cross offering a substitutionary atonement, a vicarious atonement? See, is that not the heart of the gospel? He's a particular man because he's the appointed mediator he was promised in the beginning he was perfect in that he was sinless and did no sin he was powerful in that he finished the work the father gave him to do and he can therefore pardon sinners through him by him your sin can be pardoned and atoned for remember the scripture that says second corinthians 5 21 For he that is God hath made him to be sin for us, and you know sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And how do we know that he's a pardoning man tonight? Well, look at the empty tomb. The Lord Jesus, a true man, with a perfect manhood. Even when he died, his body saw no corruption. We have to think about the incorruptibility of his humanity. See, if the Lord Jesus had stayed in the tomb, there'd be no forgiveness, there'd be no pardon, there'd be no gospel. But his body, even in the grave, saw no corruption. That's exactly what Paul's telling us here in verses 34, 35, 36, and into verse 37. It was impossible for him and his human body to see corruption. He truly died. We acknowledge that. But he was preserved from corruption. He was preserved from decay. Remember, he's the God-man. His flesh, he tells us here, saw no corruption unlike David. And we can trust him. We can taste the pardoning mercy that he has to offer. There's the centrality of God's forgiveness. It's through him and by him, this particular man. Notice also very quickly, the sufficiency of God's forgiveness Let's think of these terms here, uh, the forgiveness of sins. You see, as I'm saying to you tonight, you'll only find the forgiveness of sins on the basis of who Jesus Christ is and what he's done. Ephesians 1 and 7 says, In whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Therefore, you need to receive Christ. Therefore, you need to see him alone as the only saviour of sinners. And here's the Apostle Paul. 
And he's preaching this message. This is one of his recorded evangelistic sermons. And notice the word preach is preached unto you. In other words, he's he's a herald. He's proclaiming this is a message. As I've said, he's not there to give a lecture. He's not there to act as an historian. He's not there as a comedian. He's not there to give a talk or make a speech. The word preach is very important. He's literally a preacher who's heralding a message. And it's an evangelistic message. It was the late Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones that said, every one of his two sermons in the Lord's day, he sought to make one of them an evangelistic sermon. And of course, we follow in that tradition in the free church. We preach unto people the forgiveness of sins. What does that involve? What does that mean? It means the removal of the penalty of sin. If you link it up, the forgiveness of sins and the doctrine of justification, it says in verse 39, and by him all the believer justified from all things from which they could be not justified by the law of Moses. See, let's remember that justification is an act of God's free grace whereby he pardoneth all our sins and accepted us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. And isn't that the keystone of the great reformation? Doesn't Hebrews 9.22 tell us that without the shedding of blood is no remission? And Paul, he brought the message home in Romans 5 and verse 9 when he said, much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. The blood is the ground of our justification. And you in Christ who trust him, and believe in him and receive him, whatever way you want to put it, you can be legally declared righteous before God. Not only does he pardon all your sins, but he accepts and treats you as righteous in his sight. Think of being legally declared righteous before God. Treated by God as if you're absolutely righteous. See, every person who's justified is a pardoned man, and every pardoned man will be a justified man. The two go together. And what he discovers is that sin's penalty, which is eternal death, is being dealt with. Remember John said, For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but the world through him might be saved. He that believeth in him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already. Because he had not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. He added this in verse 36. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God abideth in him. And that word believeth is the present continuous tense. It means uh, to trust in, adhere to, and rely on Christ. Could I ask the question? You're in the journey of life. Regardless of your age tonight, do do you know the blessedness and reality of the removal of the penalty of sin, which is eternal death? Remember, you're only a step from death. You're only a heartbeat from God's eternity. And it's imperative upon you that you know the forgiveness of sins, that you know that this involves the removal of the penalty of sin. It also involves the release from sin's power. Uh, The hymn writer said he breaks the power of cancelled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood avails for me. See, sin is a power. And it's a power over the souls of men and women. 
And you see somebody who's converted and in Christ. Remember 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature, old things have passed away and all things have become new. You see, the moment you trust Christ, which involves the removal of the penalty of sin, it also involves the release from sin's power. The drunkard's not down in the pub anymore, getting blocked out of his head. And the thief's not breaking into people's houses and stealing anymore. And the wife beater has stopped beating his wife. He now loves his wife. And the cursor with a foul tongue that would have turned the air blue with cursing and blaspheming. Well, well, well his language has changed. And, and the gambler, well, he's not wasting his money anymore. And the drug addict, he's not dependent on drugs anymore because he's found new life in Christ. See, see forgiveness involves that. I want you to understand the terms. Here's the sufficiency of God's forgiveness. And maybe you're sitting listening and you're thinking, well, what about the law? It's interesting that Paul deals with the law for he knows his hearers. Many of them are Jews and they're asking, what about the law of Moses? What about the Ten Commandments? What about keeping them? See, let's remember, it's impossible for the law of God to forgive sin. Many people are involved in law-keeping. They believe the Ten Commandments are binding in all men. But what does the law do? The Ten Commandments, when we read them, the law shows us that we're sinners. The law makes us feel guilty. The law challenges us about our lives. The law condemns us. The law can't save. The law can show us. It can't justify us. As Paul says in Galatians 3 and 24, the law is our schoolmaster to bring you to Christ. You see, and that's what this church is about. That's what this pulpit ministry is about. To preach Christ and him crucified. And that's why, of course, we attempt to expose the, the ecumenical movement and the World Council of Churches and the Irish Council of Churches and all the isms of the day. Because all we do is to present Christ and him crucified and say that is fundamental and that is central. Dealing with the guilt of our sin, dealing with the shame of sin. Christ Jesus offers a full and free and forever pardon. It, it, it involves, of course, the, the, the rest from sin's pleasure. He takes the love of sinning out of our hearts. Maybe you're here tonight and you're full of shame and guilt. You've said to me, but I've made some terrible choices. I've got problems sleeping, Pastor, you know that. My life's hopeless. I, I feel lost and empty. I'm at the point of despair. I, I can't forgive myself what I've done. Can I remind you, you're right, you can't. But Christ can forgive you. And you can rest in that forgiveness. Not only have the removal of sin's penalty and release from its power, but you can rest in sin's pleasure because you now have a new love in your heart. And that's the love of Christ. Let me close tonight. We've thought about this theme, the wonder of God's forgiveness, the necessity, sins, the centrality of it is bound up in the personal work of Christ. What a man the Lord Jesus is. We've thought about the sufficiency of it, what it actually means in, in, in understanding those terms. But let's think of this, the forfeiting of God's forgiveness. Look at verse 40. Beware, therefore, lest that come upon you which is spoken of in the prophets. And then he quotes from the book of Habakkuk that we thought about this morning. 
You see, there is such a thing tonight as judicial blindness, granted by God, as the result of man's own refusal to come to Christ and reject Christ. How many tonight refuse Christ? How many reject Christ and why? What is it that's holding? It has to be sin. Let me close with a sweet story. I like this story. The Bible says beware of dogs. Now, I'm not a fan of dogs. All, some dogs, yes, but not, 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 not all dogs. But I want you to think about a famous dog in the world. And one of the world's famous dogs, did you know, is a St. Bernard. And those big St. Bernard dogs, they used to be raised to be rescue dogs in the mountain ranges of Switzerland and France and Austria. And there's one particular dog among the St. Bernards, you can look up Wikipedia, and it was a farm dog who became a national hero, and that dog was called Barry. Now, remember, these dogs are bred for rescue dogs. And when it snowed, uh, uh, or, or um, the, the dogs sensed that, they, they got all frisky and they got excited and they started to bark. Do you know that these Suburners could find a body buried in an avalanche of snow 25 feet deep? They could dig down. And they used to, when they found that person, lay on top of them, lick their face with his big tongue, and then hopefully... They revived. Well, this dog, Barry, he had rescued over, well, 40 wayward travelers. And his 40th rescue involved a little boy that got lost in, in the ice somewhere in the slopes in Switzerland. He fell into an ice cavern. And this dog actually found him. And the rescuers were able to come down. And then they laid the wee boy and the dog's back. And, and Barry carried him home. His 41st rescue resulted in his death. He died in 1814. It was during the Napoleonic Wars. One soldier got lost. He'd been lost for 48 hours. Barry was given a scent and sent out to find him. Barry did find him, buried in an avalanche of snow. He dug down. He uncovered him. He, he then began to lick his face. But as this soldier sort of came to... He thought he's been eaten by wolves. That's a true story. He took out his bayonet. And, and somehow he managed with a little strength and he plunged it into the side of the dog and screwed it round and left the dagger in the side of the dog. And as the dog pulled back, he, he pulled the dagger out. And of course, out came the blood. And the dog stood back and gave a yelp and then went, went back the many miles to its camp. When it got into camp, they noticed the dog had been wounded. They seen the trail of blood, and they followed the trail of blood uh, back uh, to where the soldier was still lying buried in the ice and the snow, and uh, he was saved. But the dog died. And that dog became a hero. Now, now think of that. Knifing your rescuer. That's exactly what that soldier did. And instead of rejoicing in the rescuer, there's a rejection of the rescuer by the knife of rejection. This is what I think of you. And isn't that what many are doing tonight with God's forgiveness?
They're forfeiting that forgiveness by the knife of rejection. They're refusing their rescuer, who is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. If you look on down in the text, it says, And when the Jews were gone out of the synagogue, the Gentiles besought that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. See, they were putting it off. They were thinking about next week. Maybe you're thinking about next week. Maybe you're thinking about tomorrow. Remember the Bible says, Boast not thyself of tomorrow, for no man knoweth what a day may bring forth. Here's the greatest message for now. Here's the greatest message for a deathbed. Here's the greatest message for God's eternity. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Don't think about next Sabbath. Don't think about tomorrow. We're not guaranteed tomorrow. But don't reject Christ. Don't refuse him. Rejoice. And come to him. He said, all that the Father giveth me shall come. And him that cometh, I will in no wise cast out. I commend this message to you. Think of these words and ask yourself tonight, do I know anything of the removal of sin's penalty? Do I know of the release of sin's power in my life? Can I rest in that sin's pleasure has been taken away? And that one day, I'll go to the land that's fairer than day, where there's no sin, light or, or darkness. May the Lord bless you tonight.